0: Hi, my name's John Casher, and welcome to Cash Talk, where there'll be no boundaries and a lot of straight talk. All things money, business, and just everyday stuff. Hey guys, before we get started, just a quick reminder that all the information in this podcast is of a general nature and not tailored to your personal circumstances. So please seek personal financial advice before acting on this information. hey everyone and welcome back to another episode of cash talk and today i'm joined by a very special guest amp capitals chief uh, chief economist dr shane oliver jane shane joined amp um, back in 1984 as chief economist and head and, and is the current sorry chief economist and head of investment strategy shane has extensive experience in analyzing uh, the economies investment cycles and what current positioning means uh, for the return return potential of different asset classes I personally though has been listening and you know uh, to Shane for many many years uh, and his take on the economy and assets and today I'm very privileged to you know uh, discuss with Shane some of the economic events that are happening and and what's going on in the world of money so first and foremost Shane thank you very much for jumping on
1: my pleasure John thanks for having me
0: uh, that, that may, it's 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 really good for us to have an opportunity to unpack some really topical things at the moment. Um, if you if anyone thought that the investment world was uh, boring and, and uneventful, I think uh, we're in some events and some some you know uh, some things at the moment. But before I get started into what we're going to unpack today, I just want everyone to just remember that. What we're going to discuss today is of a general nature. It doesn't take into consideration your personal circumstances. So please don't go off and act on this stuff. Go seek professional financial advice before acting on any of it. But Shane, like I mentioned to everyone, I've been following you for quite some time, but maybe can you just give me a little bit of an insight about how did you get into the world of investments and and economics and and where did it all start? And obviously, you still got a love for it. So how do you keep the passion?
1: that's a good question. When I I think about it, it was almost uh, good luck. Um, When I was at school, I loved economics. But of course, you know, when you're at school, and you you study economics at school, you've got no idea what economists do. um, I thought maybe I'd end up being a school teacher or something. But anyway, I I decided to do economics at university. I also enrolled in law, but didn't really like law that much. But uh, when I was doing economics, I did everything I could to to stay away from the financial side because I thought that was too dry and boring but it was only in my, into about my third or fourth year at university that I realised there is a lot of interest in the financial world of economics and that's when I got more involved in that I had a, I had a great supervisor at university who really inspired me to look into um, issues around investing I, I actually did a, a PhD thesis on speculation in investment markets these days you'd call it something like speculative bubbles or behavioral finance and investing um but those terms weren't around back then uh and then that led me to a job in a financial organization called amp um so i've been an amp for all of my uh career but um it was very much ivory tower economics back then in the early days of amp well that wasn't early days for AMP, in terms of amp's history but Uh, When I started there, it was early days for me, Um, and then as the years evolved, I sort of got more into the investment side of things um, and loved the the job I got into, which basically involved taking economics as a discipline, um, applying that in terms of analysing economies, uh, but also in particular, applying that to the analysis of investment markets. Uh, And then, of course, at the same time, I got to get out there and meet clients. I mean, these days, it's been a bit limited in the last couple of years. A lot of it's been uh, electronically as opposed to face to face. But for much of my career, I was out there face to face. Um, So you got that mix of, I guess, something you love economics, combining that with in some ways maybe helping people become a little bit more au okay with what's going on, putting things in context. You know, I reckon it's part of my role to put things in context. You know, We go through events like we're going through right now. Uh, and I think it's important to be able to go back through history and say, well, we've seen this before, not quite the same, the, the events are always different, the names are different, but the basic principles of economics will repeat um, and remain the same. And that I think is useful for investors to help them stay the course if you like. Um, and one of the things I've learned through my whole career, just how difficult it is to time markets perfectly. You put a lot of effort into it and get something roughly right, but still you're going to get caught out at key points in time. Um, but for ordinary investors, it gets even harder again. But the, the, yeah, one of the things I love about it is helping inform people about what the underlying economics and financial news means to them. In simple language, rather than getting too bogged down, which I guess is what a lot of the media does, or getting too alarmist, which is what a lot of the media certainly does.
0: Yeah, and it's it, it's that's a great first and foremost. It's a great story, and for you to be at AMP for so long and continue the message. And and for me, I started back in two thousand and two three, something like that. Um, and I still remember, you know, you back then putting out, um, really. I think he hit the nail on the head, which is like simple language, um, easy to understand and easy to digest, um, but was very impactful. And I think that's what I related to very, very well. And I'm not sure how long Oliver's Insights has been kind of running for, but, you know, it's been going for a while. And, you know, we used to circulate that, you know, to a lot of people. And even still today, um, you know, one of your charts earlier this year in 2022 was really good about, you know, climbing the mountain of worry and, you know, just creating simple graphs into, into, into um into easy language for people to understand which has been great so um thanks and, and i see obviously still the passion there which is obviously amazing um you probably hear my passion to myself and you now it's very much around you know learning learned, you know at school and at uni and stuff a lot about you know economics and obviously playing that out in my role and then bringing that to the investments into the retail investor or to the mum and dad and how does that obviously impact them so Great, great story. And so talking about, obviously, a lot that's going on today, Shane, because there is a fair bit that is on this kind of mountain of worry, if you want to call it for investors. The Obviously, the one that's in our screens all the time at the moment is around Russia and Ukraine. And, you know, there's been a lot of talk around the economic effects that that has to the global economy, and then the rippling effects that has locally. Um, obviously, on the backdrop of all this, this was the stuff that was leading into the um, the Russia and Ukraine, which is around kind of the inflationary pressures. And obviously when people are filling up their petrol tanks uh, these days, they're feeling it real at yeah. the pinch. But do we want to maybe start with, you know, Russia and Ukraine and what it means to the global economy and, and maybe locally and then and then potentially obviously how that flows on to the inflationary pressures and, and what's already around?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it it's, it's funny, I've spent half of my life in the cold war and then the other half of the last it's the life since about 1990 outside of the cold war and now we're sort to of be going back to some sort of cold war which is kind of depressing in a way it seems like the world has become a bit more stupid again I mean, not to say there weren't problems in the last 30 years but at least it, you can have a degree of optimism that you're going in the right direction but the, the the war in Ukraine I mean horrible is it is it is on the TV to watch and see those people just like us you know getting pushed out of their homes and having their homes blown up and People killed. I mean, that's, that's just terrible stuff. Um, but it it it's it comes at a time when you know we'd recovered from or recovering from the pandemic. Uh, the pandemic had set off its own problems. Uh, you know, initially, the fear was deflation and and depression. Uh, you may recall there was a time twenty three months ago in April of 2020 where the oil price went negative (laughs) and so yeah we've spun spun around in just a short space of time from negative oil price to now what whatever it is north of 100 um, and still going higher I won't nominate a level because by the time anyone hears this it'll be a different number but it's gone up dramatically Um, but what happened for the pandemic was the people were stuck at home they couldn't go out and spend on holidays and things on services so they allocated more spending to goods they were provided income from work if they were working at home or from government, they got support there with JobKeeper. So it wasn't as if households were short of cash. They had the cash, they couldn't spend it on services, they spent it on goods. Suddenly everyone wants to upgrade the car, renovate the house, get some new furnishings, maybe get a boat, whatever it is. Um and at that came at a time when, you know, production in factories, whether it's in Australia or China, was disrupted. Uh, So consequently, you've got a lack of supply, increase in demand, prices go up and we get the supply shortages we've had since. And then you throw into that a rising trend in commodity prices, you know, to make more things, you need more commodities, whether it's oil or uh, gas for power in Europe. We don't use much gas for power in Australia, but they do in Europe, Um, uh, metals, iron ore and so on. Um, So commodity prices have gone up. So then you throw in a war. And war disrupts the flow of things around the world. Russia is a relatively small economy. I was surprised how small it was last Friday when I looked this up. Their economy is 1.6 trillion US dollars. Our economy is about 1.5 trillion US dollars. The only thing is that our population in Australia is 29 million people, just less. The 29 million people, theirs is almost 150, 160 million people. So you can see right away, <laughs> this is a wow. country that hasn't been doing too well um it's a similar story in belarusia and uh the, the stands yeah Kazakhstan mm-hmm. down the bottom so if, you, if you're sitting there in Ukraine and you, you look east and you say well they're not doing so well if you look west mm-hmm. you see the European Union Their living standards up here mm-hmm. over in East it's down there naturally you know those people want to join the European Union and 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 the West Mm-hmm. um but it also makes life tough for political leaders in russia because they might want to wag the dog given their economy hasn't been doing too well but anyway cut to the chase small economy but it produces 11 percent of the world's oil this is russia it produces something like combined with ukraine it produces something like 14 percent of the world's wheat so you've got a situation where the supply of those things is suddenly disrupted now of course the sanctions uh, have initially been targeted at allowing that energy to flow through but now there's more talk that either the Russians will cut off the energy that is, or they'll cut off the, or the, the West will put sanctions on Russian energy supply. So that's led to uncertainty. And in any case, there's a lot of companies, shipping companies saying, well, we're not going ship any oil out of Russia or anywhere around the world. We're not going to touch the, pl- the stuff. We're going to self sanction. Whether we've got a formal sanction or not, we don't want to do it. Um, so all of these things are flowing through into a surge in oil prices, surge in wheat prices, surge in metal prices. And at the same time, defense spending is going up. So that means more demand for all these metals and things. Um, and that's obviously adding to inflation. You know, the pointy end of that for us here in Australia is obviously the petrol price at the bowser. Mm-hmm. The world oil price as of today, you know, it's pushed up to around $130 a barrel. It's come back a little bit, uh, I think in the West Texas, the, the US one, but in Asia it's about $130 a barrel. Uh, even with a bit of a rise in the Aussie dollar, um, it still translates to petrol prices of two dollars a litre or more, depending on Whoa. what grade of petrol you buy. So that's a bit of a shock. And for Australian households, it means that an average household which consumes something like thirty five liters of petrol a week, um, now maybe a little bit less these days because not as many people go to the office, but in a normal environment they'd be consuming about thirty five liters a week um, do the maths on that that they're, they're paying or will be paying something like fifteen dollars a week more than they were just three months ago back in December and you multiply that out, that's seven hundred and fifty dollars a year, which is quite a hit to household spending power. Um, so that's that's. The, the, the big drag so you have got this inflationary boost and you've got um associated with that a hit to consumer spending power um and that's why the share markets are worried they're worried about higher inflation um and this some people would immediately realize this is stagflation you're worrying about higher inflation like we saw in the 70s but at the same time slower economic growth and in the 1970s, that was labelled stagflation. Now, some countries are more vulnerable to this than others. Europe is probably the most vulnerable because they're the most dependent on European oil and, and gas. Uh, the US, believe it or not, is an energy exporter. They do import some oil from Russia, but they can probably in time substitute that for oil from Mexico and Canada and get around. And their own shale oil production will ramp up dramatically on the back of this. So they'll probably survive um, and in Australia we're an energy exporter as well. So there's a national benefit in the sense, higher prices for our exports, more money going to Canberra and maybe they can give tax breaks or handouts to households in the in the budget in a couple of weeks. So it's, yeah, it's pretty bleak, but by the same token, Australia and the US aren't as badly off as, uh, as some other countries and we probably won't go into recession, but we will see higher inflation.
0: Are we seeing Shane, are we seeing Shane a shift um... Are we seeing seeing a shift and what i mean by that is obviously there's disruptions on the equity on the equity markets um, we're seeing them kind of come off um but what you're what i'm hearing here as well too is that governments are, are obviously reallocating where they're importing where they're exporting all of those things and this is this is shifting we are obviously seeing inflationary issues but these inflationary issues were they around before the Russian and Ukraine issue because there was a lot of money pumped into the economies. Um, you know, we talk about JobKeeper. I think if my memory serves me right, it was about $386 billion or something that was pumped in. Um, you might quote me on a better number than that, but I think it was roughly around that. But around the world... It was world, that, that amount, but it was a lot of money. A lot of money, but we'll, we'll take it. Um, it will take it. Will always, we'll throw a few on top. But anyway, uh, what I was going to say to you, the, around the world, obviously, there was a lot of stimulus in the kind of COVID scenario. Is this kind of the two just happening together and 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 what's your thoughts around governments fighting against this because you know a lot of people are concerned when you talk around this scenario where you know we've got this call it stagflation happening that governments are not really prepared for these scenarios but it did happen in the 70s it
1: did happen in the 70s and it took them a long time to get it back under control again if you, if you think about it, the 70s were part of a reaction to the 1930s. So, in the 1930s, we had depression, falling prices, or deflation. Uh, it took a while to get out of that. We had World War II, but when we came out of World War II, policymakers, governments, central bankers, they were all focused on avoiding depression. And so, we saw an expansion in the size of government. We saw protectionism. Uh, we saw increasing money supplies. They used increased money to pay for the Vietnam War. Um, And that ultimately broke out in lower productivity in the 1970s, slower economic growth in other words, and higher inflation. And then we got the OPEC uh, oil shock, which then boosted the inflation from a relatively minor problem to a very big problem. Um, And it was only in the 80s and 90s that they got it back under control again. And they they did that by supply side policies. You may recall Reagan, Hear of, have heard of when you were yeah. younger, Thatcher, Keating, and Hawke in Australia, they deregulated economies, opened them up. Uh, we had globalization, which was a good thing in a way. China and Russia and Eastern Bloc countries came into the world, lots of low cost producers, lots of competition. Um, and that all helped bring, it, bring inflation down and boost productivity. Now we're seeing the reversal of that to some degree. We saw lots of money printing through the post. Uh, global financial crisis years, but it didn't really result in much inflation because at the same time, governments were doing fiscal austerity. You know, the focus in Europe and the US was cutting back on government spending. When we got to the pandemic, uh, all of that was thrown out the window. We saw lots of money printing and we saw lots of government spending. Um, That government spending and money printing was probably necessary to avoid a worse outcome through the pandemic. But we're now paying some price for that in the form of higher inflation. And even before Ukraine, uh, the U.S. was seeing its higher in, highest inflation rate since the early 80s at around 7 or 8%, and uh, likewise in Australia, we've seen inflation pick up, although it's far less of an issue in Australia than in the U.S., but other countries have seen the same. So there is an element of lots of money sloshing around, uh, chasing few good, fewer goods. So, you know, at some point... Um, production will pick up and people will allocate more money back to services, less on goods, and inflationary pressures might come off a little bit. But you've still got this underlying change in the economies we're in that they've become less competitive. If we're moving into a world where there's an Iron Curtain down there through Ukraine, as President Zelensky said in the last week, you know, the noise is not the fire of guns, it's also the lowering of the Iron Curtain. Um, If we're moving back into that sort of world, then that's going to mean less competition globally and and higher prices. Um, And, uh, you know, you've got a bunch of baby boomers. I don't want to extol the benefits of baby boomers, but (laughs) when baby boomers entered the workforce in the late 60s and early 70s, they were the young people. You need young people in the workforce, but they're often not that productive when they first start. Mm -hmm. Like I reckon I was most productive probably my peak was when I was about 48. That's just my mm. rough estimate. Um, mm. I'm still pretty productive now, but the baby boomers are now retiring, but you've got a bunch of millennials coming in, which mm. is well and good. That's just the nature of the world. But it, as millennials are less productive than the baby boomers who are retiring. So um, mm. that also leads to a bit of inflation and pressure, a bit more wages growth than we've been having lately. So there's a bunch of factors suggesting we're moving into a world which is somewhat more inflation prone, maybe a little less productive than it's been um, which isn't so good you know we're hearing today from the Prime Minister saying well we need to think about making more things in Australia um, which is what Ben Chifley said after World War Two. we had to make the Holden car and I of course bought Holden cars and of course not, not enough Australians bought them so Holden went out of business here but um, it, 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 you know we're sort of moving back to that world which is a little bit more protectionist yeah I, I like to make things in Australia but I'd rather we do it without sort of inducement from government to do so
0: and I think I think you can also look at the Trump scenario where you know when you said those things and he was like you know make America great again, bring you know as much as we can back to America. Um, it probably has been happening for a little bit. This kind of bring back away from this kind of the globalization. And I'm sure that there was other underlying things in regards to the way that he was talking about that. But you know, yeah, we are we are seeing that. Um, but what? What are governments doing to kind of combat this, or what's in their arsenal Shane, to kind of combat this stuff? Because when we talk around, you know, the RBA, for example, we're at cash rates that are at you know record lows still. Um, you know, and usually we got told in the old textbook, you know, if inflation comes, you kind of they drop, they increase the cash rate, um, but then that has an impact on households as well. Coupled with you know what's going on with the Bowser, uh, let alone what's going on, what potentially could go on with their home ones. Um, yeah, what's in their arsenal and what do they need to be concerned about? Yeah,
1: it's, it's complicated um, with all of these things in economics. I mean, obviously, governments might think, oh, well, we'll have a price freeze or we'll just criticise companies for being uncompetitive or ripping people off. Um, those sort of things, they don't work. You know, Nixon... Nixon, and I think in Australia we tried price and wage freezes in the '70s, and they just don't work. It you know, just mm. suppresses something; that pops up later. It was Keating, Ultimately, I think, that we even
0: Keating wanted to do it, didn't he? He said something about it. I think uh, when he was in power, or maybe treasurer at the time, I think he came even out and said he wanted to do wage freezes, and everyone frowned upon it back in back in the day. You point, I think it was him anyway. So yeah, I don't think that many people like you know freezing of wages, but I'll let you keep going. Uh,
1: that- They they don't work. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, it's sort of just trying to suppress something and then it pops up somewhere else as a problem or later on. So that was a complete failure. I mean, getting to his credit, deregulated a lot of things. So ultimately set us down this path. I think him and Bernie Fraser were the ones that came up with the two to 3% inflation target, which we still have. That's what central banks are still charged with achieving in Australia. I mean, ultimately it's a combination of things. We probably are gonna need tighter monetary policy, uh, higher interest rates, Uh, But it comes with a complication, two complications, in fact. One is household debt today is a lot higher than it was in the 70s. (laughs) So it's the ratio of household debt to income is maybe four times, four or five times what it was back then. So you can't raise interest rates too much uh, without causing problems in households. And the flip side to that, of course, is that the Reserve Bank knows that. And therefore, they only want to raise interest rates a little bit to slow things down, take the edge off things. So therefore, monetary policy is arguably more potent than it was back then. Like I reckon a 0.25% interest rate hike today is equivalent to almost a 1% interest rate hike in the late 1980s. Uh, so So you won't need to raise interest rates as much, which is probably a good thing in some ways, but obviously higher interest rates will slow down the property market um the other aspect is that you're dealing here with mainly a supply side problem that it's the supply side which is lacking and governments I I think therefore have to play a big role in that they need to find ways to supply cheaper energy so we're not dependent on Russia um now obviously some of that's going to involve sustainables and given the targets to move towards a decarbonized world by 2050, zero emissions, um, you know, increasingly we're gonna, we're gonna end up relying on sustainables. But there is an interim period where they've still got to rely on some dirty stuff. You know, Europe, yeah. for example, can't rely as much on gas or probably won't want to rely on gas from Europe much, from Russia much. So they're gonna have to rely on other stuff and some dirty stuff in the short term before they get to that phase where it's more sustainable. So obviously energy supplies need to be secured but in a way that ultimately gets us towards a more sustainable world down the track, cleaner energy. Um, also making supply chains operate smoothly, you know, making sure there's enough competition out there, um, making sure that, that, that there's not not so much regulation. Um, you know, we went through a, a period of regu- intense regulation in recent years. Um, I, know, I know we all think of the industry we're in, such that it's now very expensive to get a financial planner. <laughs> So um, yeah, that's a high cost for people um, who don't have a lot of income and but they may need a financial planner. and you know, look at ways to reduce that cost so people can get access to a financial planner at a reasonable, uh, reasonable cost. Um, yeah, so there's correct. lots of things that can be done to make sure the economy operates as smoothly as possible. So that businesses aren't encumbered with unnecessary regulations. Um, you know, you look at the costs in Australia, we have very high cost housing because our infrastructure is all designed such that we live in the city or in a big city, Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane, whatever. Um, you know, the pandemic has shown that well, maybe well, we don't all need to live in the cities. We could all have more people living out in Ballarat and Bathurst and orange and so on and so forth. Um, but we've got to make sure that the infrastructure is there and that those, those regional centers are able to supply the housing, Uh, and make it easy for builders to get out there and supply that housing to allow that to happen if you do that you you save massive amounts of cost and made it made it easier for young Australians to get into the property market so there's things that governments need to do um, they're not easy fixes they're things that take time just as what Paul Keating and Bob Hawke and Reagan and Thatcher did in the well, the 80s, know, yeah, that took time to bear fruit. But they're the things governments, I think, really need to be thinking about right now.
0: It's very interesting you said about the potency of an increase in interest rates. Um, you know, and I was trying, I was just with people who were have never experienced an interest rate rise before. We were working with our very, you know, our younger clients, and I was just explaining to them what, you know, like a one percent increase would look like. You know, and I kind of said to them, you know, on a six hundred thousand dollar mortgage. is an extra six grand, 500 bucks a month, you're going to find it. Yeah, where where are you going to find it from? And, you know, just understanding the potency of that, um, I understand. So, you know, maybe they don't need to, you know, go out and do what they did back in the 70s and, you know, really try to, you know, increase at rapid amounts um, to bring that down. So, Great, great tips. I think um, the other one that I was hearing as well too is that there's a lot of moving parts here. Okay, there's a lot of moving parts, and this is this is probably something that's not going to be settled, you know, in the next couple of weeks. Um, so Shane, how like for it to go back to you know supply um, issues being kind of resolved? What's the kind of expectation in regards to a time frame for you to see come back to like some kind of normality?
1: Pushed out. Um, There was a time last year where the Federal Reserve in the U.S. said it was transitory. Came the favourite word of uh, some economists and central bankers: transitory. And then here we are, almost a year later, and we still got the inflation problems, and they haven't resolved. And then Ukraine's made them all worse again. Um, Like a reasonable time frame in Australia, I think, is probably twelve months. Um, It's it's really this: if we can continue with the reopening, and I know we haven't mentioned COVID much um, so far, but if If coronavirus remains less harmful and the vaccines continue to help, then we can continue with the reopening and hopefully we can go on overseas holidays again, which means it takes some of the spending pressure off goods back onto services. And at the same time, as production ramps up in countries around the world, then that should start to get prices down. Um, so that's the good news that some of this inflation pressure will come down, and it will we will get to a point where we're, we'll be oversupplied with furnishings. You go down there and now, there's a shortage of furnishings. You'll get to a point where there's an oversupply of them. Um, so hopefully, that's I, I reckon probably take about twelve months to resolve. The longer term issues that come with declining productivity, they make they're the ones that take longer, um, and, and and adjusting to a world where part of the world is cut off from the other part of the world. It also takes a little while. Like when the Berlin Wall came down and the Cold War ended, you know, it took us a decade or so to adjust to a new globalized world. <clears throat> and all these countries opened up to us. Now, suddenly we're finding that, you know, within a short space of time, it's suddenly all been closed off like fund managers. You know, it took years to allocate money to Russian equities and Russian bonds Now they're unwinding their allocation within a couple of weeks. (laughs) Um, It's it's, that adjustment is occurring really quickly, but we've got to find ways to operate in this new world, Um, being less reliant on countries that might have decided to go down a more autocratic path. Um, Now there's plenty of countries out there that will friends with us, you know, a lot of them are all near (laughs) us. When I was at school, you know, we used to talk about Indonesia, I even studied Indonesian at school. So so maybe we get closer to our near neighbors again. Um, Malaysia, Indonesia, Singapore, Philippines and so on, Uh, Thailand. Um, Whereas for the last 15-20 years we've increasingly flown over them, even though we still go there, we've increasingly flown over them to other countries.
0: It's a very, very interesting world and there's a lot a lot of moving parts. Um, Just a couple of maybe final notes, Shane, um, maybe just, I don't know, two or three tips for investors. Um, and, you know, you can, they can be anyone, but if you were maybe, I don't know, speaking to, let's just start with a novice person, you know, if, what would you be saying to them about what's going on and, and some tips that you can give investors?
1: Well, the first thing I would say is that investing is not easy. Uh, I know a lot of people hear, well, crypto has gone to the moon done really well I I should just invest in crypto or this stock did really well I should get in there um it looks really easy in hindsight but in reality it's not so easy um so just approach this whole investing thing uh with a degree of humility um you know if you want to get into it you've got to be prepared to put a lot of effort into it read a lot of books get a process to to drive decisions, but most people aren't prepared to do that effort. So I think the key in all of this is to make the most of what I call compound interest. As a well-known economist, Dr. Don Stammer, used to say the magic of compound interest, make the most of the magic of compound interest. And that's where a growth asset, like a share or property will grow over time because it's leveraged to the economy. As the economy expands, the share market, the property market will reflect that through time and so consequently if you make the most of compound interest have a decent exposure to growth assets you'll do better than someone who just has it all sitting in the bank and you'll do better than someone who has it all sitting in government bonds and you can see this time and time again if you look at the rolling 10 20 year returns out of shares and property uh, you know they're invariably always better than you get from um, uh, from bonds and cash you might go through the odd period there um, but if you're thinking about you know your investment horizon you are b- far better off in growth assets that's tip number so be humble make the most of compound interest don't get thrown off by the cycle you know whichever way you cut it something is going to come along and rain on your parade you're going to think i had a great return last year which many people did from the share market and property markets and then history tells us that oh gee where's you're going to have a rough year next year and that's the way it goes um uh, and that's what we're seeing but you don't want to get thrown off by the cycle because if you get thrown off by the cycle and sell after the market's gone down like now the news is pretty bleak and dark we've got floods we've we've had the pandemic you know, people dying and that's been horrible now we've got war going on now we've got inflation potentially rising it all seems pretty dark If you get thrown off by the cycle um back into cash odds are you'll never get back in or oh, when you do get back in it'll only be when the share market's gone all the way back up because when the share market initially starts recovering you say to yourself oh it's just a dead cat bounce you know everything's still horrible <laughs> it's only all the way back up and you oh gee whiz maybe the share market had it right and those who got in not many people got it but those who, who wrote it up they're the ones who've done well then you get in by that time the share market's back where it was when you sold out or well above it um so don't get thrown off by the cycle um, you are doing that, you're invariably locking in a loss. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's best not to lock in that loss. Very hard to time when the market will go back up. So I reckon the key in all of this is to stick to a long-term strategy. So be humble, make the most of compound interest, don't get thrown off the side by the cycle, don't lock a don't lock a loss in. Um, stick to a long-term investment strategy and the best way to stick to that long-term investment strategy is to get a plan with somebody or other a coach call them a financial planner or you might have another term for them Um, get some sort of coach uh, to help you through that and stick to it and one way to stick to it is to turn down the noise you know the more i turn the noise on like it's all i can't get away from this gadget here it turns itself on something up there that i'm supposed to be looking at Um, it distracts you you know people's time horizon used to be maybe i don't know 15 minutes to sit down and read a book yeah how many people sit down and read a book anymore because you're distracted you won't look at your phone like i'm one of the worst offenders but i've increasingly found that i've got to find ways to turn down the noise i've turned off all the notifications on my phone i think the only notification that works is will be if you give me a phone call and then it goes beep uh, to say that it's ringing. And when you send the message, I get a bit then. But nothing else. All the other notifications are turned off. Um, so you've got to turn down the noise. And the problem with that noise is that you've got traditional media at the present, which is TV and radio and print. They're trying to compete with the social media. And guess what? There's a huge battle on there for your eyes and ears. And unfortunately, they've had to become shriller. And how do you get more eyes and ears looking at your stuff? when you put more and more negative stuff in there bad news sells. so i used to get the the paper and you get a reasonably balanced flow through as you go through it you have the headline there which might be bad news that got you into reading it but then you'd get a reasonably curated whether it's murdoch or fairfax or whoever you get a reasonably balanced view of the world as you go through there now if you're just reading it on the the online version you just look at the clicks What do you click on? Usually click on the things that are salacious, bad news, look interesting, all that sort of stuff, but you're not getting that balance. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think, A, turn off the note, don't look at it so much, but when you do look at the old print version or you can ask for the newspaper version of the paper to get a more balanced view of the world. But I think at times like this, you've really got to find something more entertaining and relaxing. I used to watch old Brady Bunch episodes, <laughs> maybe a bit dated, I'm sure it had a big impact on me. But um, yeah, watch a movie, a fun, happy movie or something, you've got to find a way to turn down the noise. That helps you stick to a long-term investment approach and avoids getting thrown off just at the wrong time.
0: It, it, they're absolutely great tips. And for the people that have been listening to me and and obviously even the clients, i, I I one hundred percent agree with everything you say, Shane. And not not to the point as I just tell people, I do it myself. You know, I people are astonished when I tell them that I don't look at the stock market every day. Um I don't. Um I don't want to look at the stock market every day. It's trying to take my money away from me. Um and you know, turning down the noise is is huge. That is. You uh, know, what?
1: I did a stat on this. I did I did a stat on that. You look at the nightly news, you look at the finance update and the news program, it's 50 50 as to whether you're going to get good news or bad. If you push it out to one year in Australia, it's something like 80%. You push it out to 10 years. And I'm not saying just look at it every 10 years, push it out to 10 years, it's 100% you're going to get positive news. So that's just, it's really messy day to day or even month to month. So, yeah, it's certainly best not to look at it on a on a frequent basis.
0: And I think the other thing as well, too, is just for all the investors out there is, is there's a lot of people trying to take your money away from you. You know, um, there's not a lot of people that are trying to put your money in your pocket. And, you know, on me as, and me as an advisor who obviously works with my clients all the time, you know, I'm really trying to control their behavior and the way that they do things. And, and chain, you know, over my career, I've really you know tried to emphasize that the behavior of the individual dictates so much of what happens with their money and their performance in regards to their performance or their portfolios or their wealth creation or whatever. It's got a lot to dictate what goes on between between the years. And you know, in sport you hear it all the time, you know, it's 90% above the shoulders. When it comes to investing, wealth creation or whatever it is, it's exactly the same. So Shane, absolutely great tips. And you know, Shane, for the people that think that this is, you know, this current scenario is never going to end, they might feel like, as you see, there's all this bad news and all this, oh, you know, oh, my gosh, this is like it's never happened before like this. We're going back into doom and gloom. What would you have for that person that's maybe feeling a little bit, you know, like that?
1: I, I would just say look back through history. You know, we've seen some terrible times, you know, World War Two, World War One, Great Depression. Um, you know, gone through the GFC, you know, Aussie markets fell 50 odd percent. But yeah, you know, we pull out of, you know, the history of things is invariably it turns out okay. In in good, well managed countries like Australia, it turns out okay. Um, even though you can go through these periods of pain. And for investors who stayed the course, um, you know, they got the benefit of that. So that, that to me is the way to look at it. I mean, these things have happened before. I mean, that wall of worry chart or mountain of worry. Yeah. Um, that's what the share market does. It climbs that mountain through time. Um, and it's able to do that because at any point in time, there's usually lots of people worried. <laughs> so the share market doesn't fully reflect right. the the better times that come down the track because there's usually some skeptics holding it back. Um, and so consequently, it's able to, to climb Negative news. Look, like, think it last year. I mean, we mm-hmm. went through that horrible, 2020 rather, we went through that horrible period uh, from late February 2020 when the news on coronavirus got worse and worse and worse and worse until late March of 2020. I think it was precisely February the 23rd to March the 23rd. Yeah, um, it yeah. worse and worse went down, then suddenly the market's find a bottom. It was 35%, 37% lower for our share market. And then it just sort of started grinding higher against everyone's belief. Everyone's saying, well, how can that be? The share market's gone bonkers. Um, but it's the way the share market works. You know, it gets, it falls out of bed every so often like it is at the moment. Well, they're not as much and Australian shares are holding up with it better because of resources uh, shares, but in other parts of the world, closer to the conflict with Ukraine, it, yeah, it's falling out a bit. Um, and then eventually it finds a low. That's the history of these these panicky periods. It finds a low and then starts grinding higher again against a lot of people's disbelief. And uh, that's the, the wall of worry that it climbs. But it's, it's these periods of, politi- of volatility, which give us the higher returns from the market. You know, to some degree, it's the price you've got to pay uh, for getting higher returns over time from shares and also property compared to what you get from, say, just having your money sitting in the bank.
0: Yeah. Great, great tips, Shane. And Shane, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on today. I really do appreciate it. And to understand, obviously, the world of what's going on and how that relates to investors as well. So thank you very much for giving us your time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, john. great to be here
0: and all the best to everyone take care thanks for, thanks thank you for listening to another episode of cash talk i hope you enjoyed it and if you want to learn more about me jump onto my instagram at, at the john Kasher, and you'll find me there or at my website at www.johncasher.com.au thanks for listening cheers